Good morning, Faith Covenant. Well, there we go. I mean, that's a great way to start off. And if you're the sort of person who likes to find your spot in the Bible right away, we're going to be working out of Matthew chapter 26 today. Now, last week we wrapped up a mini-series called The Return I Never Knew. It was a series that talked a lot about the end times and the second coming of Christ. And through that series, there was a theme that we talked about that emerged, this idea that action follows belief, that what we believe will become evident in our lives, in our works, in our actions. And who do we believe Christ is? And how do we live in light of that belief? If we believe he is who he said he, or who is, he has claimed to be, then we will live with the end in mind and will be found ready when he returns. Now today, we're going to start another mini-series as we continue to dig our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And this is it. This is the last mini-series. <laughs> And it's going to carry us all the way to the end. Don't get too excited uh, that, that we're almost done. So perhaps, though, it is appropriately called the last days I never knew. So let's start to know them, shall we? Uh, this week, we shift to a Christ who knows. He believes that his last days are upon him, and that belief drives action. This is one of the natural tendencies in human nature that in light of soon coming death, that belief drives change. For some, this results in spending a lot more time with loved ones, family members, people who are close, investing very intentionally into those relationships. For others, it ends up manifesting itself by you apologizing or pursuing certain people to, to seek forgiveness for past wrongs. For some, the end of life represents a time of despair and hopelessness. But for those who are enticed, it represents a soon coming eternity that is better than our current state. Now, whether you've seen this happen in someone else's life, or maybe you're walking through this right now, what we are seeing today is how does Jesus respond to the crucifixion being very, very near? Where we begin today, he is telling his disciples exactly how close his death is. So we read in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1, we read, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So there's two things right away. First, Jesus finished saying all these things. Now, Matthew doesn't simply mean, I believe, that he just finished sharing these parables we've been going over the past few weeks, but actually that all the things Jesus was teaching during his public ministry have now come to an end. The public ministry of Christ is pretty much done at this point. Now, the second thing is he knows the crucifixion is coming. He knows that he's about to be betrayed and belief leads to action. So what does Jesus do with this knowledge? Well, first he demonstra demonstrates some divine foresight. He operates in the role of a prophet, sharing what is about to happen. He also identifies himself as the son of man, which in, in the Jewish world was, was a phrase or a term very much associated with end of time, with the Messiah, or with apocalyptic events. I know you thought maybe we got out of the end time since that was the last many 
serious, but we just can't quite get away yet. We actually read in Daniel chapter 7 about a, this vision Daniel has. And Daniel says in that chapter, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Sound familiar? He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It sounds great, doesn't it? Man, sign me up for that. But right now, what Jesus is saying is this son of man in this moment is going to be betrayed. And knowing death comes, Jesus spends time with those who are close to him, his disciples. Does he run? Does he seek to evade this impending betrayal? No, because he definitely knows who he is. And his everlasting dominion includes bringing sinners like you and me, into his kingdom. He does not escape, but his actions are continual submission to God's will. And for some reason, he really believes that you and I deserve a chance at eternity with him. These beliefs lead directly to the cross. And as we continue, Matthew shares some of the background for how that happens. How do we get to the cross? And we continue reading in verse 3. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. In a story with cosmic scope, here is a parallel story or a, a subplot happening in close proximity, both geographically and chronologically to this prophetic revelation that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. But this story follows not the disciples of Christ, but those who are against him. Chief priests, Jews, elders of the people, Caiaphas, the high priest. These leaders are assembled in Jerusalem at the time. People from all over Israel were gathered there to celebrate celebrate the Passover. So in this festive feast atmosphere, these men have congregated together. And while there is a formal gathering of religious leaders, which we would call the Sanhedrin, what we're looking at here is not that. This gathering is less formal, more hidden, or perhaps more accurately, it is being conducted off the record it's, it's that kind of subplot. They're not meeting where the Sanhedrin would normally meet. And they're meeting instead at a residence, the residence uh, or of the high priest. The purpose of the gathering is pretty simple. These men believe that Jesus is a threat that must be eliminated. They do not believe he is a son of man, the Messiah, the Christ, but rather a threat to their stability, the status quo, you know, maybe their position. Or for some, they probably just understand that Jesus is claiming to be the son of God and have rejected that claim. Therefore, Jesus is a heretic. And the law is clear that one claiming to be God, there is one punishment, and that is death. So regardless of their belief about Jesus, Wherever they are coming from, the end result that they all desire is not that Jesus simply be quiet and sink into obscurity. 
The objective of this, of this group is how to bring about the death of Jesus. Their beliefs are leading to them, uh, leading them to this action, whatever form that action takes. And, and these are those who are rejecting Christ, yet they are placed squarely into the story, squarely into the narrative. These men are part of God's plan. Jesus knows he is going to be betrayed before these men know that that's how they're going to gain control over Jesus. Jesus knows he is in control. The crucifixion is necessary. And these men who are at this moment certainly not aligning their wills or their minds to the heart of God, to the will of God, they are yet being used for God's will to be accomplished. It's a theme we see all throughout scripture that God is in control. God is accomplishing his plan for redemption. And he does it through the one who submits perfectly, Jesus and he does it through those who don't even seem to submit to him at all. Simply because this road, this path leads to the cross, we can't forget Jesus chooses still to walk that. He is not forced. Those coming against him wanted to gain control over Jesus, but they only really do that because Jesus submits to God's will and willingly walks that path for you and for me. But what about these last days? recognizing this journey is nearly done, where does he spend his time? As we look at verse 6, we find that he is spending his time in Bethany. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured out on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, Bethany is a town about two miles east of Jerusalem. It's basically the Mount of Olives. This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, and also where the house of Simon the leper was. Whether he was alive at this time or not, this is where they are staying. Now, if we remember that for two chapters before this, Jesus has been sharing and teaching the disciples, mainly through parables. Where has he been teaching the disciples? He's been teaching them on the Mount of Olives. So when we read this phrase, while Jesus was in Bethany, we may well understand that this is where he has been during his stay outside of Jerusalem. In fact, all the way back in chapter 21, we read about Jesus entering Jerusalem to great acclaim. People are rejoicing, waving the palm branches. He goes to the temple and flips over tables. You guys remember that? When he leaves the city, where does he go? He, he goes to Bethany. We find he was lodging there. It seems this is where he remains during his final days before his betrayal. Now, the Gospel of John places this particular event, the story of the perfume, six days before the Passover. But still part of the time best described as while Jesus was at Bethany. Now, you might ask, why not put this chronologically in order? Like, why would you why would you miss two? The Passover is in two days, Jesus says to his disciples, and I'm going to be betrayed. And then share a story that happened six days before the Passover. Well, maybe 
Maybe Matthew's highlighting the reality of Christ's approaching death, that the son of man's crucifixion was foreshadowed in multiple ways, and that looking back at these events just now, they are connecting the dots of what Jesus was saying. The imagery of the story is striking. Jesus is reclining at the table. These were low tables in that culture, often surrounded by cushions and rugs, and people would lay beside them often, often on their sides. If you picture the, the awkward high school portrait, you know the one where you're asked to lay on your side and you don't quite know what to do with your hand, you know, and do you put your leg out? I didn't do that pose in any of my pictures, but, but you know what I'm talking about. And so people would try to get comfortable, usually on their sides at this table that is so low, and their feet would be angled away. That way, the servants could go around the outside of the table and that's how they would wash the feet unless of course you are this woman who comes right up and dumps perfume on Jesus so let's let's talk about that a little bit this perfume would likely have been something close to a family heirloom it would be very very valuable and the jars they used to store this kind of perfume were were single use jars if it helps you might want to think of your childhood and those old ceramic piggies uh piggy banks you might remember you remember like i had one so much like this that my grandma gave me when i was young and i would stick quarters and nickels in there because i was young paper clips and squished jelly beans also got in there and i found i found that i always regretted not having some of my money when I wanted it. So did any of you do this? I would take like two butter knives and stick them in the coin slot and you try grabbing them like it's tweezers or you would take it and flip it upside down and shake. All sorts of stuff would come out except money and you would hope one coin would just drop out of that coin slot. These didn't have the nice little port on the bottom that they, that they now, people have gotten wiser. But even then, can I complain a moment? Isn't that port on the bottom of the piggy bank designed to be opened with like a quarter or something? Where are your coins at? They're, you never have a coin. It's in the... Anyhow, the point is... The point is, much like the piggy bank, to get the treasure inside, to get the perfume inside, you had to break the bottle. It was that kind of bottle. And so once you broke it, you used it. Or at the very least, you had to have another container handy to transfer some to an alabaster was very expensive as well. So whether for a very special occasion or burial, these perfumes were rarely used. Enter Mary. The Gospel of John identifies who this woman is. It's Mary. That's not the mother of Jesus. And by all outward appearances, there's absolutely nothing here in the story that represents a reason for using this perfume. This is not a special feast yet. It's not a celebration. There's not a wedding. There's just some disciples and Jesus waiting for the Passover to come. So why? Why on earth would Mary do this thing? Now, when you think about it, the disciples' reaction is pretty relatable. If it helps you picture it even more in more contemporary terms, what if you think of this more as a small trust fund, which has around $20,000 in it? I actually found a Bible scholar's work, peer-reviewed, about eight pages regarding ancient trade routes, daily wages, units of weights and measurements. There were abbreviations all throughout it that I skimmed over. And all I could think was, thank goodness someone did all this work so I could make up a story about trust funds. So 
Imagine you control this fund, $20,000. And since we're imagining, if you know the rules regarding trust funds, throw them out the window. We're imagining. And one day, your favorite person is going to share a meal with you. And you have friends there, and there's acquaintances. Your favorite person is not about to buy a house. They're not about to have a wedding. There's no reason that you perceive, no financial need to give such an extravagant gift to show your devotion to them. But you empty the fund just to give it to this person. And after you've had dinner and you're all sitting around the table, you walk up and hand this person, or if you follow the story, you drop on them, 200 $100 bills. And all your friends and all your acquaintances watch this and they know where you got the money. They know exactly what's happening. Don't you think they'd have questions? I would. I would have questions. But action follows belief. Maybe Mary doesn't fully understand who Jesus is or who he's going to be, but she believes something that is concrete enough, real enough, immediate enough, that this becomes a reasonable action to take. It's like her heart in this action is saying, Jesus, you are more than this simple offering. You are more valuable than family heirlooms and financial security blankets. You are better than retirement plans, prestige, savings accounts, reputation, safety. You deserve all I can give. And while this is just perfume, it's the best I have and I give it all to you. She's essentially saying that there's nothing in the story of her life that adds value to her story that is too important or too valuable to offer to Jesus because ultimately his glory is greater than her story. Scholars have debated, did she understand that Jesus' life was about to end? Did she, did she really get this? Like he said, the Son of Man was about to be, be handed over, was going to be crucified. Certainly all the disciples knew that Jesus' life was in some form of danger. It's one of the reasons he's in Bethany instead of in Jerusalem. But we don't know for sure. But we are left with this. She be believed enough to give it all. And it's hard to find any other explanation for this level of devotion and generosity. No one is forcing her. No outside force compels her to give this. Her actions challenge us today to reflect on how freely do we give to the Lord. We're generally not compelled to give in such sacrificial ways to the Lord, but what do our actions reveal about who we believe Jesus to be? You know, though it may never come to emptying retirement funds or freely giving away the most valuable objects that are in our house, what actions do we take that reveal what we believe? Again, God may not ask you ever to do this. He could. It's on the table. God could ask you to give everything, including your life. But Mary wasn't asked to. I'm not telling you to. But if we believe Jesus is who he said he was and did what we say we believe he did, there should be an unprecedented, unprecedented openness to sacrificing anything and everything should the moment come where that seems to be the appropriate action, the appropriate thing to do. We find that when we place our faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, we are in essence saying anything and everything I am, whatever is part of my story, it is yours to command. But more than that, 
More than that, we should find ourselves increasing in our desire to give unprompted things of great worth because while he is Lord and commands us, he's also a friend, a treasured teacher, a leader finally worthy of adoration. And while holding on to things of great worth might build up the narrative of what we accomplish in our lives, here we see that the right posture is that his glory is greater than our story. So those things that fuel our story, that add value to our own story, actually should only find value in how they might be used by who? Us? No, but by him. The actions of Mary here demonstrate that kind of belief, which is then contrasted with the response of the disciples. These were, for the most part, simple men from poorer families who would not have been used to seeing such displays of wealth or of generosity. So their response in many ways is reasonable. Unless in that exact precise moment they were thinking, and as they looked at Jesus, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world, the Son of Man, our King. Here before us is the perfection of humanity and morality in a single human. What could we give him? And when Mary comes with the perfume, they could just appreciate the moment that together they could share how much they value who he is. But what we find instead is it seems their minds were somewhere else. I think we see rationalization in the response. The disciples are shocked by this demonstration. It was a culture where when guests came into the house, it was not unusual to put oil or perfume under their head as a, as a sign of hospitality and appreciation. But this, this is excessive. If you aren't going to hoard the family treasure, which this would have been a family treasure, at least sell it or maximize it for the most good, for the most people. It's the rationalizing of their choice of what they believe would have been better. Yeah, Jesus is great and everything, but imagine how many poor you could have fed with that. Out of all the disciples, this is their thought. Maybe Judas, maybe Judas is thinking more about how he could feed himself in some ways. But this, it seems, is a conversation they're having as they struggle with the financial loss of something that didn't even belong to them. It's a conversation, it seems, that they were having among themselves around this table. And like Jesus does so often, he's somehow aware of what their hearts and what their minds, what this conversation is. And so he says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, Jesus never really got the normal treatment for burial. The oils and perfumes that were used for the deceased were not applied to him at the right time. Some of these same women would later go to the tomb after he'd been crucified, bringing oils and perfumes to make this right. But instead, they would find the empty tomb, which is incredible. That's the resurrection story. But it's also great news for them because to do it at the wrong time, the odor and the situation that would have been in that tomb would have been horrific. He never gets that treatment. But here, whether she has a clue or not, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, enters the story performing an action that has prophetic weight to it. Simply, it seems, because she was fully committed, all in, she believed enough, and it led to action. 
Now, Jesus doesn't overlook the poor when he addresses the disciples. He's actually quoting an idea from Scripture that says, you will always have the poor among you. He's not saying, because they're always here, you don't have to worry about them. He's saying, you will have plenty of opportunities to walk in obedience, providing to the poor, but you won't always have me here. You won't always have this opportunity. And true to his word, we share the gospel in this building, in this place. And we're still talking about what this woman did for Jesus to prepare him for the crucifixion. Now, it isn't that the disciples didn't believe many of the same things that Mary did. This is my opinion. But I don't think that this is a contrast between Mary and the disciples to show how shoddy or shallow the belief of the disciples were. I think it's more of a contrast to illustrate that we can take our eyes off of what or who really matters. Doesn't that happen? That, that we can still be disciples and walk through moments where we totally miss it. They missed what was happening. They missed the import, the weight of the story. At least they missed an opportunity to appreciate the gift that was being given to Jesus. You know what? I've missed what God's been doing around me before. And I've missed the story of what he's doing and how he's moving lives, how he's using somebody. And though Though we don't read it here, what we know is that these disciples are used by God in mighty ways again and again in the future. And that should challenge us as we read through this to walk with our eyes as open as possible, focusing on Christ so we don't miss it. But when we do, there is always hope that God will continue to use us. But for one disciple, there is a great contrast a massive contrast between the selflessness of Mary and the selfishness of Judas. In verse 14, we read, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. All the Gospels agree in this, that Judas was not pursued by any of these men. We have no record of him being approached. We have no record of these schemers trying to sow discord among the disciples. There is a full agreement that Judas, along with all the disciples, knew these men were against Jesus, probably scheming against him. And Judas, knowing this, approaches these men to ask, what would you give me to help you accomplish your objective? So this is not so much a bribe as a contract with a fee being paid up front, 30 pieces of silver. This brings up memories out of Exodus chapter 21, where it records various regulations regarding when a slave would be killed. We read there that if a man owns an ox and it gores and kills a slave, of course the ox must be killed, but that man must also pay the slave owner 30 shekels of silver. Or in modern terms, this would be about $280. The Gospel of Mark records that the priests and elders are delighted that Judas would come to them. And they're probably delighted that they could buy a betrayal for so cheap. 
one person pours $20,000 out as an act of devotion, and another will betray the Son of Man to basically add $300 to their purse. When we remember that this happens just shortly before the Passover, next week when we talk about the Passover meal and the bread and the cup are being passed around and Judas is present at that meal, it is not entirely unlikely that he has this silver on him while he is receiving those things from Jesus' hand. Scholars look at this and wonder why the betrayal, though. Was Judas a zealot? Was he really looking for this Jewish warrior king who would lead them to triumph after triumph? And had he become, once he realized that's not what Jesus is bringing, so disillusioned with Christ that he abandoned the hope he had had in the Son of Man? Maybe he was simply greedy, and though this is some gross betrayal, maybe Judas thought that there would be no serious repercussions. Maybe he didn't understand the weight of the objective that the leaders of the Jews had to kill Jesus. Maybe Judas even believed in some manner everything Jesus had said about who he was. And so maybe he even thought whatever these Jewish leaders planned, there's no way they could harm Jesus, whatever his belief is or his mindset, the action that follows does really show where he places value, that he believes more in self-gain or his own plans or some level of control to make something happen. As we reflect on the whole story, it begs the question of us, how do we value Christ? Is he of immeasurable worth, worthy of all we could give? Or do we sometimes follow him or interact with him, pay homage to him to see what we can get? Last week, Pastor Kevin talked about hell. That was really fun, wasn't it? Yeah, and I'm glad it was last week and it was Pastor Kevin and not me this week. I think some people look at their life and what do I want for myself? And it's really easy to say, I don't want hell. And so they follow Christ. Their belief in Christ is more about, I don't want that to be part of my story. And it's not really about God's story. It's not about living for Christ. You don't live with the end in mind. You aren't bearing fruit. You aren't looking around for opportunities to serve God with your life and resources wherever you live, work, learn, or play. I think there's some who follow Christ for similar reasons. There is a voice in my ear always asking me, come to church or follow Christ. You need to give your life to Jesus. And the only reason you say you follow Christ, the only reason you do these religious overtures and things is so that the voice will stop. So it's really about what are you getting out of it, not what do you bring before the throne of God. But I also know that there are some who are incredibly sacrificial. People who have presented the best of themselves time and time again, their time, their resources to God. People who would say, Jesus, you are more than this simple offering. You are more valuable than family heirlooms and financial security blankets. You are better than retirement plans, prestige, savings accounts. You deserve all that I can give. And while this is just perfume, I give it all to you and it's the best I have because your glory is greater than my story. 
If we believe, it leads to action. This happens corporately. It happens individually. As a church, we believe that human beings are created in the image of God, that every man, woman, and child has incredible value because of this fact. For that reason, we partner with Door of Hope, which licenses, certifies foster care, Christian foster care parents in this area. Tampa Bay is one of the greatest concentrations of, of foster care need in the state of Florida. We also partner with New Life Solutions. You might have noticed a table out in the lobby over this past month. They have one of their major fundraisers. They provide vital prenatal care, also post uh, to at-risk populations, people who are abortion-minded, ministering. And we partner because we believe that the image of God doesn't simply reside in grown adults, but extends through the whole spectrum. Belief leads to action. And maybe for some of you, you should consider being a foster parent. Maybe for some of you, you need to stop by the table on the way out, learn about New Life Solutions, partner with and support them as they provide vital care within our community. But it really comes, what do you believe? What do you value? If I ask you this morning, this simple question, do you believe that this path Jesus walks and the grace gained through the cross is for you? And I just follow it up with, do you, you believe that for your neighbor also? That it's for them, for your coworker, for your classmate. And if you believe, what is the action? If you believe that Jesus or our God is our sustainer, our provider, how does that show up in your financial conversations? If you believe he is the king who will come again soon, are you ready for him to return? Do you have oil in your lamp, right? If you don't catch that reference, just start watching back a couple sermons online. They're all on YouTube. Church, today my hope is that we collectively and individually recognize where we miss it, where we miss what is happening in the story God is telling, and that we will lean more into what we believe and who we believe in, what we know is true, but that that belief is not the end, but the beginning of lives filled with action that demonstrate again and again who it is we believe in, and that God's glory is greater than our story.